Welcome everyone to Two Guys to the Dark Tower Came, a podcast where we discuss the characters and connections in the ever-expanding universe that revolves around Stephen King's Dark Tower. I'm Jay Russo. And I'm Sean McCurr. You can email us at twoguysdarktower at gmail.com. To support the show, visit us at patreon.com slash twoguysdarktower. In this episode, we'll cover the Bachman book, Rage, chapters 21 to 35. Let's start the show. Charlie Decker and his hostages continue to share stories about their lives. A sharpshooter attempts to kill Charlie, but the padlock in his shirt pocket stops the bullet. Realizing that time is running out, Charlie has the shades drawn for one last conversation before things come to a head. Dun, dun, dun. We have come to the end of Rage, and we realize that Charlie survives the incident because he's writing this from his place in a psychiatric hospital, and he's looking back on the events that happened at least a year and a half, two years previous, it it sounds like, from the dates and and what we can determine. And there was a trial, and there's some other pieces. So he survived in, in looking back on this. And one of the things that seems obvious in this section, from my perspective, is how all the characters, Charlie included, seem to use media, things like television, movies, as a way of sort of refracting their behavior. It's like a lens on their behavior. They rely on this pop culture to relate to what they're experiencing in the moment. It's almost as if they can't describe what's happening to them without that medium to to project it on. And it, it comes up in more than one of the characters' conversations here. And I just thought it was interesting and something that we could pull out. Oh, yeah. There's no question. I mean, some of this is likely the fact that Stephen King loves to play in this arena. Yep. But there are a lot of things here that the characters rely on. For example, the windows that Charlie spends time looking through and then get shot out at some point. He thinks of them, and, and even some of the other students think of them as a TV screen. Like what the police and the spectators are doing looking into the classroom, it's like they're watching this on TV. Or they feel like the students in the classroom, they're inside the TV. They're actors on a TV show. And this TV screen is the windows. Yeah, that's the fourth wall. Yeah, yeah. The actual fourth wall is the the wall of windows. And just like on TV where you don't acknowledge that it's there, it's almost as if they're pretending that what's happening out there in the world doesn't exist and isn't affecting what's happening to them because Mm. they're just not seeing it. Yeah, another example is... One of the characters' name is, or nickname, I guess, is Pigpen. It's not his given name? No, I don't think so. Oh, okay. <laughs> Thanks for that clarification that it was his nickname. I, I, I think it's short for... Pigathy? <laughs> Lord Piggington, Pen, Pennsylvania, the third. <laughs> I mean, that's a direct homage. It also feels like a genuine nickname that somebody who has a reputation for not being super clean right. would get in high school. It's pretty mean and all... But it comes from pop culture, so. Yeah, and the characters themselves start to act as if they're characters in a movie or in a book. So I think it's Charlie who says, it seems everything that happened was just something I imagined or some half-baked writer's fantasy. Yeah. So very, very clear that he thinks, hey, maybe this isn't really happening. And then later on, one of the girls is talking about her experience and says, it all seems very fake. Like I could peek behind the living room wall and it would be cardboard 
with the director and cameraman getting ready for the next scene. And so all this is playing on that, you know, idea. And even when, I think we might have talked about this last episode, Charlie talks about how, you know, the sheriff sees himself as the John Wayne type, and they talk about people coming back from war, like in a war movie. So all these things are mediated through through what they know of pop culture, and it's it's the only way they could talk about it. And you and I think this is because they're having a hard time understanding what's happening to themselves and yeah. putting it into words. And this is the this is the the best way that they have at their disposal to, to describe how they're feeling. And it's easy to to think of this as an early attempt by King into his metafiction explorations. And even, you know, like that great Bugs Bunny cartoon where the camera like zooms out and you see Stephen King at the artist table with an eraser and <laughs> turns to the camera, turns to us and says, ain't I a stinker? Yeah. You know, and here he is. He's like, I'm writing this story. And within that story, my characters are struggling to express themselves except to almost realize that they themselves are characters in a story and why that makes them feel artificial and manipulated and suffer because they bend to my whim, the creator of this story. I understand that. And I I don't think that King is quite doing that yet. I think mm. he's much more doing it when we get to the Dark Tower, that there that's very much oh, yeah. the point of that. I think in this case, it's more of a understanding that these kids just don't know how to express themselves and TV's all they got. And they're not like us who have Simpsons memes to share. I mean, that's how I express myself as Simpsons memes a lot of the time. <laughs> so it's almost as if this is just how people act, especially teenagers, when we talked about last episode, how they're all putting out a front for each other. There's all this facade that they're putting on. And so they are expected to act one way and so they put on that. There's the all-American guy. There's the the virginal good girl. There's you know the uh, the crazy kid, the stinky kid. There's all these different roles that they're playing, and they have a deeper personality that either they don't allow to come out or don't want to come out. And so the only way that feels safe for them is by putting it in terms of 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 pop culture in some way. And they realize that, and so that that's why they're talking about it. So I I don't think it's quite to the metafictional aspect that King gets to later on when he actually has characters erasing existence literally in, in, in the book to, to advance mm -hmm. the plot. I think it's just a, a way of, that these kids are talking. And I related to it because, again, as I said, this isn't something that's foreign to us when we talk in pop culture all the time nowadays. It just probably was less so back then in the 70s when he wrote this. Another thing I think we should spend some time talking about is Scapegoat Ted. Yes. Ted is presented to us as the, I guess, stereotypical, perfect American teen. And he ultimately becomes the scapegoat to this classroom of, of kids. Right. And it's not really clear why, like organically within the story, why Ted is the one that they pick out. Why is he the one chosen? But I think you had a pretty good idea about this. Yeah. So... You know, I think this is an opportunity for King to be writerly, as I like to put it. He is playing on a number of influences that we know King has. A primary one is Shirley Jackson, whose most mm -hmm. famous story is The Lottery, which is specifically around scapegoating. And King has cited Shirley Jackson as an influence numerous times. Absolutely. Yeah. Most directly in, this, in Salem's Lot, I believe. I think he quotes her right at the beginning of that. And mm -hmm. then also... 
Lord of the Flies, which not only is something that King is definitely familiar with, but I wouldn't be surprised if he taught it when he was teaching high school literature. And again, scapegoats in there as well. And I saw this as an opportunity for King to say, hey, look at me. I'm an author and I'm playing with bigger themes here as scapegoats. I sort of had a hard time with it myself, though, is like, hey, I, I understand what King the writer is doing, but I don't know if I think that that is realistic in terms of the story. Because up until this point, this story seemed to be very realistic as far as what I think might have happened if a person who decided to shoot a teacher and take a classroom hostage might happen. And it wasn't until Charlie asked that question towards the end of, you know, what do we need to do next? And everyone raises their hands and he calls on someone and says, well, now we have to get it on with Ted and take care of him. And he's like, yeah, that's absolutely right. And this obvious scapegoating scene happens, which I, I sort of didn't get. And what was your opinion on what that meant and why it was necessary, Jay? I have a few thoughts on this, and I'm not sure if they, they might contradict each other a bit. But I think one of the things for me, which is what I suspect all the other students except Ted could easily see through, is that Ted says his motivation that he thinks, or the, what Ted thinks is his own motivation and what he says out loud, is that he needs to defend the class. He needs to defend himself and his, his fellow students from Charlie. He needs to keep everybody safe. He's being the good guy mm. and Charlie's the bad guy. But what he's really defending, and maybe he doesn't realize it, is that he's, Ted is defending the status quo. And that's the thing that the students don't like. Ted has, through no fault of his own really, benefited from a tremendous amount of privilege. It seems to me that most of the students in this classroom are middle to low income students. Okay. Ted seems to come from a family that's wealthy enough to have a country club membership and he plays golf for fun and he always has the nicest new clothes and the expensive haircut. So there's a lot of reason for Ted to want to keep the status quo because it's what helps him maintain his privilege. Mm. Everyone who doesn't have that privilege or the same privileges have a reason to resent Ted and to resent the status quo or maybe to resent the status quo and therefore resent Ted. So I think that it becomes easier to make Ted the scapegoat, even though he didn't create the status quo and he didn't manufacture his privilege. By taking it out on him, it's the class's opportunity to rebel against that status quo. And Charlie's therapy, his quote unquote therapy, is exposing the ugly underbelly of society and Ted benefits from that society. So he's the only one in the room who wants to preserve it. Charlie's way off out on, you know, outside of the borders of society at this point. So he has no interest in preserving it. And all the other students, whether it's the reputation that they, they have that they wish they didn't, or their lack of income, or otherwise, they would like things to be different about their lives. And maybe taking a bite out of Ted lets them take a bite out of that society. Right. I can see where you're coming from. But does King earn it? Yeah, but does King earn it? And and you know what what what's the impact? So we see that there's doctor's notes in a a weird sort of you know this is all told from Charlie's first person perspective for the first whatever it is nineteen chapters and then twenty chapters and then all of a sudden we get this interlude chapter that is doctor's notes about what has happened to Ted and how mm -hmm. he's barely comatose and going to need electroshock therapy and not responding to things 
so Ted gets his for really no reason that makes a whole lot of sense and suffers for it. And I don't know if anyone's better off because of that. It's scapegoating that has no real impact on anything. Yeah. And and getting to, I mean, I like it. I enjoyed the story and I enjoyed the, the, the scapegoat nature of it. I would go so far as to say that without the catharsis of the scapegoat conclusion, the story would lose all of its power. The story requires the scapegoat. And so King, being writerly, <laughs> decided this character will be my scapegoat yep. and I will plant the seeds for why the students would turn against him throughout the story. But even with that work, it still falls a little short. It still feels just like King decided before he's, he set the first word down that I need a scapegoat. I'm going to have a scapegoat. My class will turn on the scapegoat. The story needs the scapegoat. So therefore it has a scapegoat. Right. Yeah. And it does elevate this story. It was a little bit unexpected in as far as getting something different than you might expect from the story in a lesser writer's hands. Yeah. All right. So we've talked about Ted. We've talked about Charlie. And in previous episodes, we talked about some of the other characters. But there's one character I'm really interested in, Jay, and that's the mysterious Joe McKennedy, who is one of Charlie's friends, who's mentioned many, many times in this book, but we never actually see him. What's the deal with Joe McKennedy? I'm not sure. (laughs) Honestly, maybe I've seen Fight Club too many times, but I was wondering throughout most of the story whether or not Joe McKennedy is even a real person. (laughs) Or is he like Charlie's Tyler Durden? There's enough evidence, I think, that you can make a compelling argument either way. Yeah. I mean, the evidence that Joe McKennedy is imaginary is that somehow Joe always seems to be where I end up, is a line that Charlie says to us. So that might just be a coincidence, or it might be that whenever Charlie wants to have that other person nearby or to rely on, or or if he's really switching like what happens in fight club that that's what happens like whenever whenever charlie needs to be joe joe's there yep so of course he always ends up where charlie is and then there's another line somewhere along the way where charlie says circuses have never been our style and it was the hour that caught my attention the hour style as though he and joe mckennedy had so many views in common and they were even down to Things like how much they like the circus. Yeah. It just felt like something that two friends wouldn't necessarily like have a shared opinion about. Oh, we it's talk about specific. the... I mean, Jay, you and I always talk about how circuses have never been our style either, though. We're two different people. <laughs> All the time. Yeah. We have lots Which of opinions ex- on circuses. Exactly my point. <laughs> Those are a couple of examples of why I think you could make the argument that Joe McKennedy is not a real character. Yeah, that first line is the one that really threw me, that somehow Joe always seems to be where I end up, is just weird. And that scene, I believe, is when he's going to a party, when he's Mm. like 12 or something. And it's just weird how that scene is written. And not written, but sort of explained by Charlie. And they're both sitting on the porch by themselves while everyone else is having the party. And one of the girls asks one of them to come play, but not both of them. And they sort of look at each other like, ah, yeah, go ahead. But like, it never seems as if there's a conversational circle in those instances where Joe and Charlie and a third person are talking amongst themselves. It always seems to be a one-on-one conversation. With uh, it's observing. like Lois Lane never talks to Clark Kent and Superman at the same time. <laughs> so weird. <laughs> but on the other hand, Jay, 
Charlie tells these stories in front of the class and no one shoots up their hand and say, wait, Charlie, who's this Joe McKennedy you're talking about? I've never seen him in school. Uh, no one seems to question him. So maybe Joe is real? Is, is there any evidence that points to the fact that Joe could be, in fact, a real person? I mean, this is where it gets fuzzy for me, too. It is through Joe that Charlie meets Joe's older brother at college and then is introduced to the drug dealer who likes bluegrass. Yeah. And then through that guy, they find out about this big party and then they go to the party and it's basically Joe's older brother is their connecting point to everything that happens in this party scene that Charlie relates to us. Right. And if Joe's not a real person, he wouldn't have an older brother who would be in college, yada, yada. So I kind of feel like this is evidence that Joe is real. But during all of that scene, Joe never says any words. No. Not even Charlie interacts with Joe. Joe is always off somewhere or he's waiting or he's he's effectively silent. So he could be, you know, Brad Pitt in the empty airplane seat kind of thing. Right. And just Charlie just assumes that he's there. And he's like, great. My friend's in the other end of the room. He's sitting on the couch. He's talking to somebody, whatever. But he doesn't have any lines in this scene mm -hmm. for some reason. And I have a very detailed story talking to people who aren't Joe. So I don't know. One last piece that confuses the issue is that near the end of the book, there is a transcription of a letter that Charlie receives in the mental hospital mm -hmm. in which he gets updates on some of the people in the classroom and things that have happened in the town since the events that are related in the book. And King gets to the end of that letter and it has no signature. We don't know who it's from. Right. And it seems like it may be from Joe McKennedy, but there's no Joe McKennedy name there. And if not him, who? It's, it's very confusing and sort of blurs the issue. I, I don't know what to think of this. If he is, you know, supposed to be a fake person, you would think King would make more of it in the book. Mm -hmm. You know, make it some sort of twist at the end where, I don't know, the doctor diagnoses Charlie as schizophrenic or McKennedy makes one last appearance in the mental hospital when he shouldn't be there or something, but he doesn't. He just sort of leaves it that. So I don't know if you and I are reading too much into this or not, but it is an intriguing mystery. What do you think? I think that the more interesting answer to this question is that Joe McKennedy is not real. I think it's, it's, it makes the whole story one more layer of fun. Right. Or it adds one more layer of fun to it. For that reason, I think I'm coming down on the side of Joe McKennedy is, is an imaginary personality or, or, or otherwise. But aside from assigning extra fun to this story, <laughs> based on my own, you know, my own definition of, of what, what is fun or not, uh, I don't think King intended to do that. I don't think that was his plan. He didn't add the details to the story to really make that. I think this was inadvertent on his part. And you and I, after, you know, we've already joked about Fight Club, there have been a number of stories and movies that are like Fight Club that right. we can now just apply that structure to this and see that where it, it just wasn't there. So in other words, I think the real answer to that question is Joe McKennedy is real, but it would be fun if he weren't. I'll buy that. It sounds like a fake name to Joe McKennedy. Yeah. Speaking of the letter, the fact that it doesn't have the signature, it does play into the idea that King is now messing with us and having some of that fun. Yep. Because you're left wondering who wrote this letter. The first and most obvious choice is it's from Joe McKennedy. It's from his one and only and best friend in the world. Of course, he'd be the one who wrote the letter. 
But if it's not Joe, who else could it be? Then you have to play the game of process of elimination. Who are the people who are named in the letter and who wouldn't talk about themselves in the third person? And then who else might have bothered to write Charlie a letter? And it really isn't a long list, but it's still fun to play that game. Yeah. Because for all we know, Charlie wrote the letter himself. Well, yeah. I mean, that's the other thing, right? We haven't even talked about the fact, is Charlie a reliable narrator or not? Mm -hmm. And are the things included in here, can we take them at face value? So, yeah. Well, all that, I think, leads us to our Dark Tower thinnies. Ooh, I, I, I found a few thinnies. How about you? Uh, yeah, sure. <laughs> I found some stuff that we could talk about as Dark Tower thinnies. All right. Um, what do you got? At one point, Charlie is wearing a, a chambray work shirt, which is the style of Roland. Mm. And so I don't know if that is a Dark Tower thinny or... King knows of only one type of, of shirt that men wear. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I kind of feel like King wore chambray work shirts and, and jeans for like most days of most of his life. Yeah. So, of course, that's how Roland dressed and every other character. Yes. But, yeah, I'll allow it. Do you have any others? Yes. There's a description that Charlie makes of a pink spider with hidden steel legs. I know that Mordred is spider-like creature and didn't have steel legs, but on the other hand, there's a lot of robots and stuff in the Dark Tower, and you could easily see that there'd be some sort of spider with steel legs coming after Roland. Like, it seems like it would fit in the Dark Tower universe, a pink spider with hidden steel legs. I'll allow it, because we know from King's, I guess, behind-the-scenes conversations about the Dark Tower and in a few other places, that he is definitely afraid of spiders because of that horrible experience he had as a kid in a hayloft or something, right? Right. So one of the scariest things King can think of is a spider, which is why the Crimson King has spider legs, which is why Mordred is a spider slash person. So Charlie is forced to wear a bow tie to his friend's birthday party against his will, and the thing that the bow tie makes him think of is that it's he's got a spider with hidden steel legs like it's just waiting <laughs> to rip his throat out and kill him yep it is such a terrible moment in charlie's life that he thinks it's a scary thing and the scariest thing that king could use to amp up how scary and confining that that was is by making it a spider i think it's pretty cool i think my dark tower thinnies are fairly weak i think yours might be a little bit stronger though jay all right we'll see <laughs> so i only had one thinny but it's pig pen has a whole box of purple pencils and there's a there are quite a few times when the story focuses on this pencil but the fact that the pencils are purple which feels like a random and unlikely color for a, a regular pencil not not one that is that draws in purple or something like that right it's just like a number two pencil but it's purple purple yep i kind of feel like it's a it's a nod to the single blade of purple grass that Roland saw in his vision on the Golgotha with the man in black. What do you think? I thought that that's a pretty good insight. The purple blade of grass always threw me, like it just seemed odd to me. So I think it's a good call out when you point out anything that is purple along those lines. Yeah. So a single pencil, a single blade of grass, both purple. That seems to be something with King for sure. And let's make it a Dark Tower thinny. I will, I will give that to you. All right. Awesome. How about yucking it up? Blah. 
got any yucking it up moments, Sean? I do. And yucking it up for me is a lot about the feeling that invokes in me. And sometimes it's not necessarily nausea, but just sort of the details that capture it for me. And we finally get a description of the events that preceded Charlie taking this classroom hostage. And that is when he took a pipe wrench to his teacher, Mr. Carlson. And he says, I turned around and hit him just once. There was a lot of blood. He fell on the floor and his tortoise shell glasses fell off and skated about eight feet, sliding across the chalk dusty floor. I know there's not a lot of gross things in there, but like I can imagine like this giant pipe wrench hitting this guy and sort of flaying some skin off of him and causing his glasses to fly off and then blood mixing with the chalk dusty floor. And that's what got me is sort of like that essence of a schoolroom. Mm. especially back when we were kids in the 70s and 80s when there was actual chalk and chalkboards and you would smell it in the school and it would be there. And then the mixing of that with the metallic tang of blood, that just sort of got me in a very vivid way that I called out for my yucking it up moment. Sounds great. I like it. (laughs) And you, Jay? I would say that my definition of yucking it up is slowly evolving. The obvious ones are the ones that make me want to retch. But there are others that are just like they have a certain detail about them that that is kind of off-putting. So I'd say this one falls more into that category. And this is when Charlie is shot by the sniper and he gets a dent in his chest from the padlock. Mm. And the line is, Titus was imprinted on my chest in an angry purple and the flesh had been mashed into an indentation that looked deep enough to hold water. And I just... (laughs) I'm picturing the outline of a padlock that's as deep as the padlock in his chest, in his skin. Yeah. That's kind of gross. Yep. So there's my yucking it up. The other weird thing about that moment is I was thinking, man, that's a lot like that commercial when they shoot the lock with the gun. Mm. And then two lines later, I get to a superscript number. I'm like, wait, there's a footnote? And the footnote describes that commercial exactly. Yeah. I cannot recall in the dozens and dozens and dozens of King's books that I have read a footnote. Can you, Jay? I can't either. I think this might be the only one. It's so bizarre. It's such a weird little writing thing. And I could just sort of imagine like Charlie sitting in a mental hospital writing out this story and he's like, oh, I better put a footnote here for my readers. I need my (laughs) citations in perfect Chicago manual style format. It's so weird. All right. Well, this is the time on the episode where we love to thank our patrons for supporting the show. And we like to thank them by giving them access to exclusive Patreon content, such as bonus podcast episodes. We are working our way through many of the short stories in Night Shift and having a blast reading those. So if you would like to hear those, become a patron. And you can do that by visiting patreon.com slash two guys dark tower. And we'd like to thank our newest patron, Cheryl T, who joined recently at the gunslinger level. Thank you, Cheryl. Yeah, that's great. Uh, We appreciate it and we hope more of you will join. Thank you. All right. This story is dark and no longer in print, but there's still some fun stuff to it. Oh, yeah. Mine's going to start off also not very fun, but both my mom and grandmother made orange jello with carrots in it. And that's something that Charlie describes in this book. And all I have to say about that is the 70s were really weird, man. Like, whose idea was that to put carrots in Jello? Maybe they thought if like the color matches that it would work culinarily. Well, to be fair, my grandmother made 
grapes in Jello, but it wasn't just grapes, it was peeled grapes, which have a really weird consistency to them. I have no response to that. Yeah, you shouldn't. And I'm normally quite the flipper to gibbet. And, and... (laughs) (laughs) That's a Joe versus the volcano reference for all you kids out there. Oh. I probably should have put the uh, jello thing and yucking it up. <laughs> <laughs> Whatever you do, don't put it near an automated laundry machine because you might <laughs> yeah. summon a demon. I might indeed. Do you have any fun stuff? Um, because this didn't really fit in with any of our other larger themes or topics, I wanted to just call out here that there are so many telltale precursors to Hearts in Atlantis in this story. Mm. There is a character that Charlie is kind of infatuated with named Carol Granger. And of course, there is a character named Carol Gerber in Hearts in Atlantis. Good catch. There are confrontations with bullies to mixed results. That's common in a lot of King stories, but it's definitely an important part of Hearts. And there are parents who cannot connect with or understand their kids. Also somewhat common in King stories because anytime he has kids, which is often we also get a little bit of their parents. And actually, one thing I just thought of now is the trip to University of Maine. Yeah. So there's the actual hearts in Atlantis part of that story takes place at University of Maine. So a lot of like early things that I I could see King pulling from again, because they were somehow from his own life or interesting, rich experiences that he wanted to expand upon. And he just changed a few details. Yeah. You bringing that up again just reminds me of what a great book that is, Hearts in Atlantis. It's really good. Yeah. Yeah. Really good. All right. I'm going to go, you and Highbrow, comparing uh, parts of this story to one of the better King novels. I'm going to go Lowbrow. And we know that Mad Magazine was a huge influence on King. He's mentioned Mad Magazine many times. And you can see it in the bad pun. They refer to uh, Lawrence Belch instead of Lawrence Welk. And I'm just like, that could have come right out of Bad Magazine and probably has. <laughs> yep. Um, when Charlie's at the college party, at one point, a song comes on and it's the only song that gets mentioned by name. And it's a song by the Idrisi brothers singing, We Gotta Get It On Again. Mm. And that was a nice call out to the original title of the story, which was Getting It On. Yes. I have never heard of that song before. Neither had I. And I listened to it on YouTube and it was. Meh. (laughs) But it had a meaningful title. Yes. Uh, My last fun stuff is just a simple call out to Blackjack Gum, which is old school bubblegum. Charlie seems to think it's the best gum ever. If you ever had Blackjack Gum, you know that is not the case. So I have two more fun stuff items. Both are just quotes from the book. But the reason why I wanted to call them out now is because I'm thinking of them as old dog ears. When I read physical copies of a book, if there's something important on a page, I'll, uh, you know, I'll just dog ear it. Yep. So I have this copy of the Bachman books that I bought in like 1989 or something like that and read it at approximately that time and dog eared a whole bunch of pages that I thought were really cool. So anyway, long way for me to get to just me <laughs> reading you two lines from the book. But the reason why is that they stood out to me then, they stood out to me again this time and I like them. So the first one is, when you turn off the main road, you have to be prepared to see some funny houses. Fair enough. That's a good observation. Yeah. And the other one is, it has been conclusively proved there is no gravity. The earth just sucks. 
That's another good one. Yeah. I can see why you dog-eared them. And that's all I got. Yeah. So that's all for this episode of Two Guys to the Dark Tower Came. Thanks, Jay. Thank you. Links to all of our social media is available in the show notes. If you like the show, please rate us on Apple Podcasts. To support the show, visit patreon.com slash twoguysdarktower. Next episode, join us as we cover the Bachman book, The Running Man, chapters minus 100 to minus 71. And that will be The Running Man, which I am extremely looking forward to. I haven't read this book in years, Jay. I also haven't seen the movie in years, but the movie has had a profound effect on my life in many, many ways. (laughs) And uh, I'm looking forward to seeing how the book shapes up to that movie. Well, I love the book and I look forward to reading it again with you. And I also love the movie. I don't know if it had a profound effect on my childhood, but it definitely had an effect. It did. You just didn't realize it. I guess so. All right. Well, for Jay Russo, I'm Sean McCurr. Thanks for listening. We have a novel conversation about Stephen King novels. And occasionally a novella. Yes. (laughs) A novella conversation, if you will. (laughs) How does this computer thing work again? A sharpshooter. A sharpshooter. A sharpshooter. Sharpshooter. Solid gold. Do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do.